Hatch Alu was an Oromo musician and an activist. He was such a beloved figure who stood for justice, who fought for masses of disfranchised Oromo people. That's Ayantu Ayana, an Ethiopian PhD student living and studying in the U.S. She's talking about Hachalu Hondesa, a popular Ethiopian singer and member of the Oromo ethnic group, who was shot and killed in Addis Ababa in June. His music energized and amplified the collective voice of Oromo youth and immobilized them all over the world. His killing sparked protests in the country, and the unrest resulted in the government shutting down the internet. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Protests around the world are often powered by chanting and music. In Ethiopia, Hachalo Hondesa was the man people credit for composing the soundtrack of a movement. Ayantu told us she knew Hachalo, and she explained why his music meant so much to her and the Oromo people. Take me through some of his music. Did you listen to it? Yes. Hachalu was a friend of mine. I knew him personally. But before then, I knew of his music. He sang a lot about the plight of Oromo farmers, about the way they have been kicked off the land to make room for development that didn't include them. In Malenjira, for instance, he asks, do I even exist? What is, what is, this, what is the meaning of this existence of mine? Do I belong here? You know, he gives voice to a perspective that can be very silenced in Ethiopia. I'm sorry to hear that you knew him personally and and that this has happened. How are you doing? How were you when you found out? I, I really... I can't put into words what this loss means. I'm sorry. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I'm sorry to have you relive this. I know it must be difficult. Yeah. If you were to describe him to someone who hadn't heard his music and didn't know anything about him, especially because you knew him personally, how would you describe him and his music? He's one of those people that when you meet, you get a feeling that you've been friends forever, that this person already knows you. He was just a very straightforward, a very committed person. It's hard to put into words this loss, what this loss means to all peoples of Ethiopia and particularly to the Oromo. For we did not just lose an individual. It feels like We lost a whole institution. We lost what is a massive library and archive of Oromo knowledge, culture, and history. A bit about that history. Ethiopia fought a 17-year civil war. It ended in 1991, and with it came a new constitution that divided the country into nine regions along ethnic lines. The Oromo people make up one of the largest populations in Ethiopia, about 34%. And they have long complained about being marginalized by the ruling coalition, dominated by members of the minority Tigrayan ethnic group. 
In 2014, plans to expand the capital, Addis Ababa, to the Oromia region ignited national protests. Oromo activists accused the government of displacing them from their land without compensation. The anti-government protests resulted in the resignation of Prime Minister Haile Maryam Dasalein in February of 2018. That's when Abiy Ahmed was ushered into power. The state, at the very idea of the state identity of what is Ethiopian, is a very racialized idea that creates hierarchies between people. So rather than Ethiopian identity being the identity of a group of people who are plural, who have a plurality of memories and histories and languages and cultures, it becomes there is one Ethiopian norm and everybody else is marginal. Can you tell me about what you make of what's happened in the aftermath of his killing? We know that the death toll from violence following his killing is close to 239 people, and that's according to police. So why was there such unrest? In the aftermath of Haj Alu's killing, the government has arrested almost every major Oromo opposition figure. It shut down the Oromia media network. It's, it's going after organizers, activists, artists who support the Oromo movement. And that seems where its priority lies. At the same time, it's failing to protect communities. And I'm really, really concerned, as are, as are many members of the Oromo community. 5,000 people were detained during the unrest. Amnesty International is asking Abiy Ahmed's government to reveal the whereabouts of dozens of politicians and journalists who were arrested. So adding to the confusion, there have also been reports that say in some areas, ethnic Oromo people have attacked ethnic Amhara. And the reports say that they've been targeting Amhara residents. What can you tell me about those kind of reports? It's so devastating what's happened. I'm reading these reports that are coming in and we we hear people saying, we don't know who these people are who attacked minority groups. And Oromo residents saying, we don't support this. This is not us. We're being pitted against each other. And across the board, we see the failure of state officials and the police to protect communities. Why are these officials failing to protect communities? Who is responsible for this damage? How much of this is angry, disaffected youth, as some people have argued? And how much of it is organized? And who is organizing them? And who stands to benefit from these outrageous acts? It's very hard to get a sense of what is going on because the government has shut down the media and the internet So all of this is occurring sort of in darkness, but there are people framing a narrative already. We're not getting to hear from journalists who've investigated. We're getting to hear from the government line and also historically privileged elite interest groups who seem to draw on historical narratives that demonize Oromos, that we're savages, we're primitive, we're backwards, that we're just, you know, killers. And the narrative is the Oromo are killing their neighbors, but people in the ground are are not, that's not what people on the ground are saying, but that's what is being amplified by these diaspora media. She's not the only one asking questions. 
We reached out to Bilain Seyum, spokesperson for the Prime Minister's Office of International Media, and didn't get a response before this episode published. However, she spoke to our news colleagues at Al Jazeera English at the beginning of July. Now, one of the things we have to bear in mind is that this administration has inherited a very broken system um, and a lot of um, uh, grievances that had been accumulating um, over several years. And these grievances have not had a chance to express themselves um, within the past uh, 20, 28, 29 years. So this administration, having come into uh, place over the past two and a half years, has been really um, trying to unlock a lot of systemic bottlenecks. You mentioned the internet shutdown, and it's something we've seen before, and we've seen it in several different countries, including neighboring countries. It must make it quite difficult for you to keep on top of what's going on and to keep in touch with your family. Yes, it's really difficult to get information. It's not just difficult, you know, for me to get information, but it's also very difficult for journalists to get information. I found that some of the people I've talked to in Oromia are taking a lot of risks and speaking about what they're seeing, what they're hearing. Communities feel under siege. Minority groups in Oromia feel threatened. The Oromo also feel threatened because the government seems to systematically be attacking prominent members of their community, which in Ethiopia has a very long history. And and personally, how is your family doing? My family is okay. They are shaken. I've talked to my grandmother. She is not too far from where property has been burned and people have been attacked. And she's afraid. And so are her neighbors. So I'm feeling, you know, I I have to be honest, I'm really despairing. So with the internet shut down, it's hard to find out what's going on in Ethiopia. Service has been partially restored now, but many people in the Aromia region are still not able to use it. What we do know is that the assassination of this iconic figure has shaken the stability of Ethiopia. We wanted to know more about what Abiy Ahmed's government is doing. So we talked to a journalist who's been covering the region for years, Al Jazeera's correspondent, Mohamed Adel. So Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has been in office since 2018, and he is a Romo himself. But still, many say he has failed his community, and some Romo say that they continue to be marginalized. What do you make of that criticism? Well, it's a good question. And that's what many people are asking themselves. Why is it now that they are the loudest in campaigning and demonstrating against one of their own who is in power? I think that the problem is in Ethiopia's past, where there has been a winner-takes-all kind of situation with those people who produce the leader of the country being seen as the ruling elite. And I think there's been huge expectations among the Oromo people when Abiy came to power. And some feel that he's been moving very slowly. By ruling elite, he's referring to the ruling coalition that chose Abiy Ahmed as prime minister in 2018 after years of anti-government protests. I think there's been a lot of 
divisions within the Oromo themselves, we have to consider that the people who have been leading the armed movement or that was fighting for the emancipation of the Oromo people back in Ethiopia, and they are politicians, and you know they are interested in getting power. And some even say, some within the government of Abiy right now who feel that, that they might have made a mistake choosing Abiy to be the leader. And all that is feeding back to the public, and that's why you see a certain level of discontent within the Oromo. So taking us back to Hachalu Hondesa's death, Prime Minister Abi has said that external forces were, quote, pulling the strings in an effort to destabilize Ethiopia. The attorney general of the country later said that they captured some suspects in the killing and they are blaming the OLF, the Oromo Liberation Front. What do you make of of that narrative and what we know about the OLF? It's very difficult um, to say who is right, you know, in the claims and counterclaims we keep hearing. But what the government had first insinuated was that this was an externally planned killing, probably even pointing fingers at Egypt because of the current tension Ethiopia has with Egypt and Sudan over the great Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, which Ethiopia wants to start filling by the beginning of the rainy season in Ethiopia later this month. That's what the first reaction from Prime Minister B. And now they're blaming the new OLF reconstituted group that is in inside Ethiopia. It's it's hard to tell who did it. But again, what we can say with certainty is that Hajj Alu's death is uh, a game changer in Ethiopia and things are not as they were before his death. The Oromo nation has not been at ease for a long time, but at this point in time, I'd say it is at a crossroads, we can say. Yeah, and even more so striking knowing that in 2018, we saw all these headlines about jubilant people in Ethiopia who were welcoming their leaders back home because he allowed the once-banned OLF, Oromo Liberation Front, to return from exile. And so you saw the leaders come back to Ethiopia. And then fast forward to 2020, and this is what we're seeing. Yes, now it seems he did not pay attention to the demands that those who had come back will come back with and their own aspirations to office that they will come back with. And, you know, at that point, it was a kumbaya moment in Ethiopia. We could see young men singing in the streets of Addis Ababa. We've finally gotten freedom. We've got a bee. I think the reality has, you know, come to bite a bee and his government that those people he has invited back, those political elite that had sought exile in the past because of being involved in politics and being hounded around by the government of the day, have come back and they've started their aspirations again. And now he has to face them as well. And they've been working on his own constituency. Because you've covered Ethiopia for many years, I wonder 
your view on what it's going to take to see the end of this internal conflict? Well, now it, it's, it's very clear that Abiy Ahmed is facing people who will stop at nothing until they have his position. So it will be interesting to see what he does from here on in. Is he going to identify himself as he has already done as the great democrat, uh, the reformist that Ethiopia has always wanted, a man who wants to see Ethiopia have more freedom than it has currently. Is that how he wants to be seen from here on in? Or is he going to recoil and uh, do as many others have done ruling Ethiopia before him and become dictatorial in nature and say, my word is the law. So I would say he's at a crossroad right now. We also wanted to hear what Ayanto thinks of the prime minister's term so far. A lot of people have said, the prime minister is on Oromo, what do the Oromo want? And really, the Oromo demands haven't changed. You know, Abiy Ahmed was an, an, an unknown entity in Oromo communities in Ethiopia and in the diaspora. But he was vouched for by people he has now put in prison who took him around Oromo communities in Oromia, who took him around the diaspora, introduced him to communities, vouched for him, begged the community to give him a chance. And people accepted that change would take time and the, that their, their demands would be met in time. And let me mention that in the first three months or so, the changes were great and they were very healing. Like what? For instance, the release of thousands of political prisoners who were put there during the protest, the Oromo protest uh, of 2014 to 18. This was seen as a dawn of a new era, that things were going to look different, that power would be shared among different parties and not just monopolized by one party. You know, many mistakes were made, but I think the greatest mistake perhaps is that this transition, fragile as it was, was left up to a handful of elites, including Abiy Ahmed, to manage. What was at stake was the very future of Ethiopia and the lives of millions of people. If after this episode, someone really wants to get to know Hachalu's music, what song would you direct them to to find? I really like Jirra, which he sang during this transitional period. Um, And he was saying, you know, we're here, we're here. And he asks, are you there with me? Are you here? And, you know, people then will respond. It's kind of like a call and response. Jirra, jirra. A lot of people in the aftermath of his death have been proclaiming jirra, jirra, to say that you may be gone, but we're still here and we're going to carry forth your dream for the Oromo Collective and for that region. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Ney Alvarez and Priyanka Tilve, with Dina Kispe, Abigail Oniwohacha, Alexandra Locke, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. 
Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Stacey Samuel is The Take's executive producer. And Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. If you haven't subscribed to the show yet, go to this episode's description. You'll find extra information about the topic and also our social media handles at AJ The Take. We'll be back. <laughs> 